Hey everybody, this is Chris and Jason from Silver Solutions Podcast. Join us as we chat with people from around the globe as they share their real life stories of recovery. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe so you can easily find us and our latest episodes. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. Tonight is episode 65. And tonight we have an amazing guest for you. I have known Chris with a K for years. She is someone I look up to so much. She is someone I look up to professionally. She's someone I look up to personally. And she's been looking out for me for many, many years when I couldn't look out for myself. And I'm so glad to have you on the show tonight, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's so good to see you. And so I know a little bit about you, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I am a Wisconsinite, which you'll pick up from my accent in about two seconds. I have lived in this area all of my life, um, a small town in Wisconsin, and um, I'm a nurse and um, a consultant, so I travel a lot for my work. You know, I started drinking when I was 13, and 13 or 14, I can't quite remember, um, and it was just fun. I mean, immediately I realized, wow, I, I really like this. And I've always been a high achiever despite that. And throughout high school, throughout college, it was always binge drinking every weekend, you know, partying, college, some weeknights. And, you know, the only times in my life that I didn't drink were when I was pregnant or when I was nursing my babies, but you don't ever have one drink. And I was never that person. I guess I'd be classified as a, um, like a functioning, a high functioning alcoholic. So it never interfered with my work. It never really interfered with family. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's my story. (laughs) You know, I kept functioning is, is what I'm saying. And then it it hit a point where I just realized it, it was out of control. I mean, it was just out of control. And I think I hit the real pinnacle when um, my husband and I, we were kind of partying. He's not much of a drinker, but we were partying that particular night. And I asked my daughter to drive us to a bar. And so she's seeing us incapacitated and then asking her to pick us up. And she was 18 at the time. You know, I came home and I fell in the bathroom, tore down the shower curtain, came into the bathroom in the morning, saw my blinking beads that had been left. And I thought this is this is it. I I cannot do that. And you know how could I even ask my daughter to witness that? You know I just so that was my turning point. And I reached out for help uh, to a neighbor who I knew had had struggled and was sober for quite a while. And uh, she was very helpful in getting me into a program. And I didn't go into rehab, but I did start a program. And I was so horrified to join AA, you know, to to go into those meetings. And I just kept thinking, 
could I find a different group? I, I'm, I'm really looking for something with a little more class. I want to, you know, more executive level, classy people. And it was a very humbling experience because it's like, hey, hey, lady, you're no different than anybody else in here. So check it at the door. <laughs> and I mean, nobody ever really said that to me, but it was like, you know, I had this humbling experience. Yeah, I totally relate to that because I remember the first time I really started going around the rooms, I would sit in there and be like, I am not one of these people. Like I have a good job and I would always show up to meetings in like my suit or my shirt and tie. And like, you know, I was that professional. Turns out I'm a professional drunk, right? And like, it is a humbling experience to realize that we're all there for the same reason. And really being able to find that common bond in the group versus trying to distinguish myself as someone other than, because that's what kept me out, I think, so long. I was just comparing myself to other people and not understanding that we had this common bond known as alcoholism. Yeah, I mean, it is that common bond. Um, and it's it's really the the level setter right? Um, we all come in with the same issue and how it manifests is different, but it, it's, it's very humbling to realize that um, it doesn't matter what you do for a career. doesn't matter how much you earn, you know, your struggle is real and you're not going to get through it any faster than everybody else because just because you are a high achiever, right? Um, and that was hard for me. It was like, you know, you want 12 steps? I read them this morning. I mean, what else is there? <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's just getting your head around the fact that this is a process. It's a journey. It's a never ending journey. And you've got to take the time and really, really work on yourself. It's so true. I distinctly remember I went to an AA meeting in New York City, very famous group, Perry Street meeting. And this group is famous for having all different walks of life. And I was like, oh, that sounds so interesting. And so I went one day and on my left was a celebrity and on my right was a homeless person. And I was like, talk about commonality. Like these two people who are, I'm sitting in between couldn't be more different, but we're all here in the same meeting. And it was just such an eye-opening experience for me. And one of the things um, that that struck me is how, how the women in my group would often say, well, you know, almost like, almost dismissive in a way. It was like, um, you, you haven't really gotten down in the gutter. <laughs> you know, you, you have a high threshold or you're a high bottom um almost like like I wasn't I hadn't suffered enough and it, it's just kind of a weird thing um the things that people say or do that um you know can impact your recovery yeah Chris during your story you talked um about your current job and you travel a lot before I got into rehab and active addiction, 
I was traveling a lot for work and it really, it hurt in the fact that I didn't have access to what I was addicted to. So, you know, our listeners have heard many times that I used to expense fake flights back to like New York and I would make up excuses, be in the uh, parking lot for 20 minutes and then fly back out. But one thing that I've learned now when I'm dealing with is traveling for work. Now there's a whole new set of challenges and that's really in how to plan my trip properly. And I think, you know, for me, it's all about planning, uh, pre-planning. So can you touch on how, you know, when you travel, you stay sober and, you know, some tools that you use? First, I'm going to talk about, you know, some of the, the challenges that I've faced and then talk about the planning as one of the solutions. But I felt so vulnerable uh, when I first started traveling after getting sober. I was probably only three, four months sober and I was traveling to a conference and I got there and they had given away my hotel room. Apparently I got the date screwed up and I was supposed to be there the day before. And there were 10,000 people descending for this meeting. And honestly, I mean, I was literally without a room and I walk out and they, you know, I didn't even know where to put my bags. I asked them to hold my bag so I could figure something out. And I walked out and the first thing I see is a bar and right next to it was a church. And I walked into the church. There was a mass that was just starting. And I think I cried all the way through, you know, just thinking, you know, how am I going to do this? First of all, I don't have a room. I've got to stay here. I've got to be speaking at this thing. You know, what am I going to do? So I, you know, got my head together and I went back back to the conference and the people took mercy on me and found me some, you know, room at some little boutique hotel, you know, a room that was the size of an elevator shaft, you know. Um, but it was like at that moment that I thought, okay, I can, I, can, I can do this. I really can do this. And it was so gratifying to me that that I could walk past that bar and into the church instead. And I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. But I felt like just at that moment, God was giving me the choice and I chose sobriety. And it was a real pivotal point for me to just have the courage to walk into that church because it's not something I would normally do. But I felt so lost and it was right there. And the thing about having that upbringing in the Catholic church, it was like, I already knew what was coming next. You know, that predictability, you know, it just was some um, semblance of calm for me at that point. The other thing I wanted to talk about were some of the idiot things that people say to you. <laughs> like, oh, come on, come on. I literally, I was on a plane one night and the um, flight attendant offered me wine. I was, they put me in first class and she offered me wine and I said, no, thank you. I don't drink. And she was, oh, come on. Just a little, just a little bit, just a little. And I thought, are you kidding me right now? Are you kidding me? And she kept pushing it. You sure your seatmate is heavy? He's on his third, you know, and he's going, come on. And I thought, what is this? You know, 
why would anybody pressure somebody else? And I and I was talking about it in my group. And one of the women said, oh, if it happens again, just say, oh, honey, you do not want to see what happens when I take a drink. I will be dancing naked down the, <laughs> down the aisle, you know, and I just get awfully crazy, you know. And, and I thought, yeah, that would probably be a better comeback. But some of the ways that, that I cope are um, planning ahead because you don't want to be too of anything right? You don't want to be too tired, too hungry, too bored. Any, any of those things can be triggers for you. Um, and so some of the ways that, that I, I cope is just making sure that I have things to, you know, take care of boredom. You know, if I'm on the plane, things to read, things to eat, things to drink. Those are kind of safeguards against getting into a temptation. Um, having good solid plans for you know where I go to my to get my meals and who I'm going to be going with that kind of thing helps. When you were talking about the flight attendant peer pressuring you into that drink, it triggered a memory of of mine, not so much of a good one, but I remember when I was first trying out sobriety and I was traveling a lot and you know I was really telling myself don't take a drink, don't take a drink. And I was getting upgraded to first class too because I was flying so much. And I boarded the plane. The person next to me ordered a scotch on the rocks and the flight attendant said, anything for you? And without even thinking, I said, same. And it was that quick. And I don't remember landing. I don't remember getting my rental car and I don't remember driving to my hotel. And it happened so fast that it was just like reactionary. And it was it was a scary, scary thing, but it can happen so fast when, you know, as an alcoholic in first class, I mean, that booze is free. Yeah, like give me a double. But you know, now it's it's I have those tools like you were talking about, making sure that I'm preoccupying myself with that. I think the tools like you said, are what you didn't have before. Exactly. So you didn't prepare, you didn't have the tools, you didn't have the spiritual connection you have. And that's the difference when people uh, are in recovery and they're abstinent. I think they have these tools that they really developed in that process. And you were saying, Chris, what was that when they offered you that, that was your higher power, just as the same as your higher power putting a bar next to a church, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and I felt like, okay, if if I can withstand, you know, that kind of pressure or being out, you know, um, with with people on on business dinners, and everybody everybody is drinking and i'm having my you know sparkling water or my cranberry juice and sparkling water um you know i always felt like i stood out um or or some of these um cocktail hours for business too you know it was like you have to have something in your hand and so i i had to just get comfortable um you know and i i was shocked at how many times i'd have to explain to people that I wasn't drinking. One thing I thought previously, and I made a million excuses before I was in recovery, before I was in AA, was 
I always thought, you know, the deals I had, the successes I had were because of late nights, because I went to a bar till 2am because I got hammered with XYZ. And since I've been in recovery, my career has gotten much better. I've made more, you know, quote unquote, more deals. I've done better. And I always leave early. Like I just, I always leave early now. I mean, I just have really no reason to be there till 2am. So I think that was just something I was, you know, conjuring up in my head that just wasn't true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really have, I would agree, you know, that I saw a lot more of success in my business. Um, when I let go of the drinking and really focused on getting healthy, getting clear, um, I, I want to say my business doubled in the first year that I was sober. Um, you know, I had a lot of work to do on myself. And so I couldn't be putting in the really long hours. Um, I, I needed to take the time, you know, to take good care of myself and to make sure I was doing the work and taking the time to reflect. Um, when I travel, I carry my journal with me all the time. Um, journaling has become an important habit throughout this. Um, it's funny because I was cleaning the other day and I opened my bedside table drawer, which fortunately is very deep <laughs> um, because I have all the journals that I've kept since I first got sober 18 and a half years ago. And um, yeah, it's a lot of journaling. Um, and that is one thing that I do. And it's not like I journal about alcohol or recovery. I journal to journal, you know, and, and just kind of get things off of my mind and onto the paper. And I find that that is really something that keeps me healthy and sober is my journaling. You know, because I think, too, I don't want to look back and see this is when I had my relapse or this is when I fell down. You know, I I just I, I think that carrying that journal with me has been a really important piece. I definitely love that because it gives you that reminder of everything that you've been through and everything that you've been through, you've gotten through. And so, like, I know that I have days where I'm like, oh, God, this is this is bad this health scare, this terrible day at work, this fight with my partner, this whatever it is. And then I get through it. And then I have to give myself that accomplishment, you know, and, and those journals are those reminders of you getting through your days. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful exercise. And that keeps you busy on the plane, right? I mean, it's no more weight in your bag. You can keep it in your carry-on, this journal, or even now on iPads, you can you can write on it. So it's it's awesome. It's very cool. When I first got sober and was traveling, I I would plan ahead by looking for where can I find a meeting close by. Um, in fact, some of the conferences would actually have meetings in the hotel right there, you know, that there was enough people that somebody would coordinate something. But um, I remember one time thinking, okay, I, I really need this. I'm going to find a meeting. And I was in Las Vegas and um, I found a meeting in a neighborhood. It was kind of a, it wasn't a sketchy neighborhood. Um, but anyway, I was really proud of myself for getting there. 
You know, it took a lot of effort. My husband was with me at the time. He dropped me off, you know, and said, I'll be back in an hour. And, you know, I was just, I was feeling really good that I had made that effort and that I was there. I was showing up. And somebody in the room, I, I had said something, I'm having a hard time getting to meeting because I travel all the time. And somebody in the room went, <laughs> you know, and I'm going, what? You know, it's probably, you know, Susie Homemaker over here who never has had a job in her whole freaking life. And I'm thinking, how we, you know, don't be dissing me. I mean, I've made the effort. I'm here today, you know. So it's sometimes it's it's the crap people say that just absolutely floor me. When you're saying that, Chris, it, it reminds me too that we also, when we're traveling, we have to be open-minded. We we might not be able to get to the type of meeting that we usually get to, or you know, the location may be different. But like you said, putting in the effort to actually get there is 99% of the battle, right? That is that is where the work is. That is where the effort is. And once you're there, it's all gravy from there. So I think being open-minded when you're traveling and not in your home location and putting in that effort is really the battle. Uh, you yeah, know, and thank God for podcasts like this. I mean, at the time, you know, we didn't have that. And I think about it and the work that you guys are doing, this is really a labor of love for you to to share this with other people because, okay, so if I can't get to a meeting, I, I can listen to your podcast and that'll keep me, you know, centered. And now Zoom exists, right? Like our ex-host who we love very dearly is obsessed with Zoom and he goes to, you know, Zoom meetings twice a day, so. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's it's so helpful. And we we didn't always have the, the technology that we do now. And it's really a blessing. Yeah, I mean, to that point, there's the blue chair app on our phones. And it could point us to a meeting within a mile of where we are or up to what I think 50 or 100 miles to where from where we are. And not being able to find a meeting, you know, that's just another excuse that I've given myself that, oh, I'm in XYZ, I can't find a meeting, and I give up my sobriety for that day because I don't make the effort. And Chris, to your point, I might not find the meeting that I want to be at or the meeting that I feel comfortable at, but a meeting is a meeting is a meeting. And for that hour, wherever I am in the world, I'm safe. I know whether it's in English or in another language, I know the kind of pieces of the meeting that are going on right now. And I might not be able to understand it, but I can bond now with the people sitting next to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the key is that we do share this bond. Um, and like I had said earlier, I mean, it's humbling. It's humbling. Like with your example of being in this group where there's a homeless man to your left and, you know, a star, a celebrity to your right. Um, and we're all here for the same reason. Chris, you mentioned feeling a little uncomfortable in the beginning. Um, and we haven't had too many women on our podcast, unfortunately, just it's been that way. So if there is a perspective to share on being a woman in recovery, can you share that? Because we would love to hear that. I think there are some real special challenges 
And I think it goes to um, society's norms. You know, we're supposed to be the good girl. The good girl doesn't go out and drink. You know, boys will be boys, but a good girl doesn't do that. Um, you know, so I think I think that there's that kind of stigma um, with with drinking in the first place. And then, um, you know, what kind of mother drinks? You know, when you when you hear the word mother, I mean, that is like the sacred relationship, the the ultimate nurturer, you know, how can somebody with that title be an alcoholic? You know, it's like you can't be good at motherhood if you're an alcoholic, which we know is bull. Um, but because I, I, you know, my kids didn't know for Ever. I mean, they didn't see me drink, you know. Um, so, but I think that that is one of the issues with women um, is is the guilt around motherhood um, and the stigma, you know. So, I guess I guess that that's what I would share. One thing to add to that, as you were talking, all I could think about is my Instagram. You know, I'm a parent right now. I have a two year old and six year old, and I would say all of the mommy posts are them drinking late night mommy juice, right? So society now, I don't know if this has changed, but it's pushing out that moms, when they need to relieve stress, they need a glass of wine. And it's not really from the the moms. It's from alcohol companies. It's from, you know, they're just trying to sell stuff, obviously, trying to sell a a different type of life. But it's just that's all I could think about right now is how, you know, they're trying to focus on mom's drinking right now. Yeah, that is very true. And just as in the, I don't know, 60s and 70s, you know, Valium was mommy's little helper, you know, um, and now it's it's wine. Do you want red or white for mommy's little helper? Um, but yeah, I, I think that 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 has really become a norm. Um yeah, and when you talked about the Instagram posts, I'm thinking back to every, everything that I see on social media of of how how drinking and drinking heavily is normalized. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the social media impact in people's lives and just seeing what's online and how glorified it is um, just really puts people's perspectives uh, about their own life, it really changes it and, and makes it, you know, not real for them. So they're always chasing after that thing. And so it's the alcohol companies and the other companies that are just trying to like sell this lifestyle and idea that have really um, perpetuated this, this disease, I think, in my opinion. So Chris, we ask our guests, if you had to give one piece of advice, to a newcomer or to any of our listeners who are who are listening to the show tonight what's one piece of advice that you would give that person to remember that you're not alone you know that this is a journey that you have to take one foot in front of the other but look to your left and look to your right look ahead and look behind there's there's somebody there's somebody there and if you fall you know, we're going to be here to pick you up. Um, you got to do the work. You'll get stronger every day, but you're not alone. 
I think that is exceptional. And I can personally take that because you have always been there for me year after year after watching me fail many, many times and still being in my corner. So I really appreciate that. Always, Jason, always. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. I know that this topic really hit home for me. And uh, thank you for giving your perspective on um, being a woman in recovery. Um, it's something that, uh, like Chris said, we haven't been able to talk about much. And I definitely think that we need to do some more of. Yeah, I think so, too. I think, you know, you'll help lift the stigma a little bit. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. And as always, each and every one of our episodes is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. Have a great night. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.